First Corinthians uh, 13, no doubt uh, one of the most celebrated chapters in the Bible, often read at weddings, uh, especially verse 8, love never ends, but ours will, uh, kind of things. And we often tear it out of the context. We just think, ooh, this great uh, burst of love. Paul's all of a sudden getting sentimental. No, no, what he's dealing with is gifted people who are unloving people. And that's hard maybe for you to get a handle on. How can talent not be loving? How can you go to church with gifted people uh, if you just throw in talent, if you throw in, uh, and I'm, he's really talking about gifts. Talent isn't gifts. Not, this is a different thing. And uh, uh, let's say a preacher uh, who loves to preach, he just cannot stand the people he preaches to. Now, that's not, I'm really setting myself up, and I, I say, man, he's going to have a bad day. I just, just suppose, <laughs> just suppose. Uh, they make very good evangelists because they can drop a bomb and get out of town quick. Pastors have to finally repent because the people really don't care how much I know unless they know how much I care. You can't stay with people on the long haul and just be a prima donna and be bragging about all your gifts. They want to know if you love them. And this is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians are uh, not lacking in knowledge. They're not lacking in gifts. Uh, they've got it all, but they don't seem to be lacking in lawsuits against one another. They don't seem to be lacking people that are not sleeping with their wife but with prostitutes. They don't lack division. Uh, they don't uh, lack uh, the Paul party of the Apollos party. Uh, they don't lack confusion. They don't lack going to idols' temples. They, oh, they don't lack any of that either. So what in the world is going on? A gifted church to the hilt, and they're certainly carried away with the gift of tongues and those gifts that are out there and on display big time. They were in love with that, and Paul now says, I need to tell you something. No matter how gifted you are, if the underlying motivation of your heart and life is not the love of God, to share God's kind of love with people, it doesn't matter how gifted you are, you are working havoc in the church, and we could do better without your gift, without love, than to put up with your gift without love. So that's really where he's at. And I'm only going to look at the first three verses, and then we'll work our way through it this month. But let me just read the first three verses. Oh, no, I must go to at least seven to give you a little bit of the flow. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I de deliver up my body to be burned, 
but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I can't stop. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me uh, start just laying the groundwork. Let's look at several things. Let me, first of all, tell you how bankrupt English is to communicate love. Uh, I, it's better than German. Can you imagine saying, I love you in German? <laughs> like that, you know, all those gutturals. I mean, for, it just didn't sound romantic at all. Or Hebrew. <laughs> I always wanted to spit when I was trying to learn Hebrew. Just all the guttural sounds. But English is bankrupt to really communicate love by the word. Let me give you a little example. Uh, I love peanut butter. My brother David really does. He used to get up at 4 o'clock every morning and have peanut butter. Isn't that terrible? Now he looks like a peanut butter ball. Uh, two, uh, I love my mom. I love mom. Okay? I love peanut butter. I love my mother. Uh, girlfriend, I love you, baby. Uh, today, what does that mean, I love you, baby, if you got a girlfriend? Well, I put down, not quite sure. I love your looks. I love you if you'll sleep with me. Uh, I love you until someone better comes along. Uh, until the infatuation. Uh, once I come off of drugs, you'll look ugly. But as long as I'm zapped, uh, you look good. Uh, what does it mean? I love or I lust. It, uh, I love, it won't last, but for right now, the only emotion I got is, baby, I love you. Or it might be the real thing. And you may wind up saying someday to a wife, I love you. I'm willing to spend the rest of my life with you. 
I'm willing to commit myself to you. Uh, and I'm willing to hang on even when I fall out of emotional love because you will fall out of emotional love if you stay married. You will be married more than just on a goosebump or a feeling or an infatuation, especially with about the second baby and the throwing up. Uh, you will fall out of love with the sentiment of it. You don't need to go see a Hollywood fiction movie to make believe again, especially when they're uh, dying or they're sick. Do I love them? See, so I have one word to use, I love. I love peanut butter like I love my mother, like I love my girlfriend, like I love my wife. Then I turn around and say, Lord, I love you. What does that mean? We don't know what you mean in English. I love you for a while. I love you as long as you give me what I want. I love you as long as you do what I say. I love you. Yeah. Do you love me, Peter? I don't even know that you love me. So English is bankrupt. The Greeks at least gave you a variety. They had four words. They had the word eros, storke, phileo, and agape. Eros love was our word we get erotic. It was used of physical, sensual, sexual love. Never used in the New Testament. Uh, never used. Uh, but they have the word, and it was prominent. Uh, then they have the word storke. Storke was the word for family love. And uh, it only was used, I love if you if you're a member of my family. So it was another limited word. But eros was limited to the physical. Storke was limited to members of your family. And then you broaden up and you get the word uh, phileo, that we get our word Philadelphia, uh, brother, and then the, the is. Two Greek words, phileo and adelphos, put them together. You got Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly love. And phileo uh, was the word for pleasure, for friendship, uh, uh, mutual likes. We'd be, we, you know, we are told to love everybody. We're not told to like everybody. Who, who makes up the people you like? Beside, we're not talking when you're standing in front of a mirror. Maybe you don't like anybody. Just a great evangelist for Jesus. I can't stand people. I love God. I can't stand people. Well, okay, Brother Impact. Uh, uh, God's really done a great work in you, we could tell. Uh, no wonder it's not getting any further than you. He does a work in our heart to love, but... Pleasure love, phileo love, is the love of friendship. You love the same things. And so you'll see people of similar vocation, similar education. Uh, everything's got to be similar almost to have friendship love. You've got to have something in common. And so it's a smaller circle, uh, and it's, it's based upon mutual attraction, mutual admiration. Uh, we're not talking about the physical, but you like the same things, whatever. So we've got that. The word agape was just an ordinary uh, word laying around in the Greek vocabulary. It had no stupendous uh, meaning, and it seemed to be the word God picked out of the four 
to pour the content of what he wanted Christianity to look like. And so he takes this word, uh, love, and he takes agape as his chosen word. And turn with me to 1 John to get a defini- the definition of love for Christianity is 1 John 4. Uh, Corinthians is a description of this love, but I think our working definition would really come off of 1 John and turn there. Let's get a dictionary. If we don't know what the word means, uh, you know, we could throw it around, and we don't know if you're talking about peanut butter, your mother. We don't know what you're talking about. Before we look at 1 John, I wrote this definition, and it's profound, and I didn't want you to miss it. And I'll break it down, and then we'll look at 1 John. Love, I would define it this way. The attitude of mind, attitude of mind, it starts back there, that is willing to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the one loved. It's an attitude of mind in me. It's how I think, think about you, think about the person that I could truly say this way, I love you. It is an attitude of mine in which I'm willing to sacrifice to show you that I love you. Okay? An attitude, willing to make a sacrifice, and the goal is to benefit the one love. Now, this love acts to show the one love they are being loved. It acts. It's not sentimental. It's not, I love you, be clothed, be fed. I love you, I love you, I love you. Wait, 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 wait. It's a love that does more than talk, according to 1 John. It acts. It's a love of action. So it's not just, I get a feeling when you're around. It's a sentiment. No, what would you do for me? That's the measure of it. It is a love that springs from the will. It's not an emotional word. It's a volitional word. God tells me to love my enemies, and I don't get goosebumps thinking about it. It's not I get all worked up, oh, this is splendid. There's nothing like it. No, do I have to? And if I do, I choose. It's a volitional choice to love. You've found nobody in life that you can't love. It's a matter of who you won't love. You can love anyone if you choose to. And if you say, I'm an unloving person, that's anathema. That's an, you must not know God. John would say, if you don't love your brother whom you've seen, you don't love a God you've not seen. So shut up, is what he's saying. Until your love is communicated, and what's terrible is for people to be around you that you say you love and them not know it. Well, I just love you in my heart. Well, it's not worth spit to me. I need something that gets to me. Well, I'm not into words. Well, get into action. How about writing me a check? Mow my lawn. Uh, Tell my wife that I'm a good husband. Do something for me. I don't care about a mushy poem unless that's the only way you communicate it. But love does not do nothing. I think it's a bad sentence, really a lot of negatives. Uh, 
love has to do something. And some of you, the people around you are dying, wondering if you love them. And all the time, you say, man, I love you with all my heart. And here's the working man saying, well, I go and make a living. I, I work. I bring the bacon. Well, you'd do that if you weren't married. You want to eat anyway, don't you? Quit saying that's your big sacrifice. You'd have to pay rent anyway, wouldn't you? Man, it's weak. Thanks, Kevin. I can count on Kevin. I pay him. No. Uh, uh, there's four things I would say about m my little definition. Then I want to walk you through five parts of 1 John. Are you with me? Are you taking notes? I hope you take notes. Just don't stare at me. I'm trying to educate you. I'm laying a foundation. Uh, number one, it's an attitude. It starts with your mind. Your attitude. Do I love? I think I do. Think it through. Two, are you willing to love? Volition. Does it go from the mind, my attitude, to I, I will choose to love? Love is a choice. Love is a choice. Three, am I willing to give any of myself to love? Even if it costs me, will I, will I love? If you're not willing uh, to pay the price, it will cost you the love. I'm just sorry. And there's no guarantees that you'll be rewarded uh, big time from the people you love. They may want to crucify you. It's your choice. There are no safe risks to love. Oh, we want to have children. Do you? Do you want someone to rise up to disown you and say, I hate you, mother? Well, you don't know what the outcome might be, do you? There are kids that say that. There are kids who hate their parents. There are people who saying uh, getting married was the worst thing I ever did. I know I counsel with them. Uh, there are many a couple that go to high school reunions and thank God for unanswered prayer. <laughs> you know, uh, action. So love, attitude, willing, I'm willing to sacrifice, and it's action. Now listen to 1 John 4. See if these elements are not there. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay. God manifested his love. So let's take good notes. How does it look? How does it act? that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Does that sound like some sacrifices involved? Well, I think leaving a throne for a manger is substantial. Though he were rich, he became poor. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Five things I want you to get from this verse. Five things. Are you ready? Go. We got little pencils there. The source of divine love, of agape love. We're not talking about sloppy agape. We're talking about biblical agape. The source of it. Number one is not the character of the one being loved, but it's in the nature of the lover. God 
did something for the undeserving, so the love is wrapped up in his nature, not in how lovely the object is. Not because we loved him did he come. He loved us. And what we do very easily, you calculate, if I love this person or if I invest anything, what do I get reciprocally? What, what will be the return on it? I can't just be taking people to lunch that won't take me out. I can't be buying gifts. I mean, it's where grandchildren are a total loss. They can't buy anything back. I used to give my granddaughter the money to buy me something, and then I hope she got me what I wanted. But she was a winner. She just wrapped something with scotch tape and had a note and said, Grandpa, I was thinking of you as I spent your money on something else because I just wanted her, I wanted her to learn to give even though I had to underwrite it. Uh, so God, the source of this love is God, and when you're loving like God wants, you're the source. You're not looking for worthy people for your love. I've got to find somebody who deserves it. Why, you self-righteous, ungodlike Pharisee, keep it. We don't need it. That's not love, that's bargaining. Love. Some people love their animals more than they love people. All they want the dog to do is sit on their lap. And God said, I loved, and you weren't loving me. You did nothing to draw it out. Everything you deserved was my wrath, but I chose to love you even though it would cost me my son. Two, the quality of this love is that it's unconditional. The quality is it's, it's unconditional. It's not bestowed upon the worthy. It's not, it's not while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we hated God, Christ, what a time for God to love you the best is when he saw you at your worst. While I was his enemy, while I was hating him, Romans 5, he decides to display his love on the cross. It's an unconditional love. That's the quality. The goal of the love. What's the goal? What's in it for you, God? What's in it for you? The goal was my highest good. The goal of this love is to save me, is to love me, to benefit me. Uh, what, was in, what was in the cross for God? Pain? Black Friday? Or you can say, well, he got me. <laughs> hoop, hoop, hooray. What's that? He got you. You mean he stuck with you? Yeah. Now, he doesn't talk to you this way. You, you come to hear a pastor talk to you this way. You've got people in your life that probably can't stand you at times. And God knows all that about you. He knows everything wrong with you from before he ever saved you. And he said, uh, I want to benefit you. You won't enhance me necessarily, though I do call you my inheritance. But I did it for you. Uh, the good of the one love. Fourthly, the evidence of love is action. And he said, he loved you so much, he manifested it by what? 
He gave his son, and his son in a criminal death that propitiated God. So he said, the evidence is action. For God so loved the world that he sent us a poem. Or, or he said, well, I like you. No, that he gave up his only one of its kind of son, monogonase son, one of a kind of son he gave. God's love uh, is action. It's not to see. There's something even in the uh, Greek word for compassion. We'll see people, oh, I just feel so bad about them. Isn't it terrible? Well, yeah. Let's keep driving the, the bummy money. Well, what's this over here? I feel so bad. Oh, throw up. God didn't say, oh, I feel so bad. Love doesn't feel bad. Compassion, it starts in the splotnoid, in the gut, deep-seated, but it moves to bring relief to the one suffering. You haven't loved until you move to do something about it. No. Not God's love. God didn't pity sinners only. God sent someone to save sinners. This is God's love. And finally, the extent of love is sacrifice. Uh, no greater love than this, than a man laid down his life for his friend. You see, God took and drove a stake in the ground called the cross to forever take you for the rest of your journey. Here is my proof that I've loved you. If you ever doubt God's love in the moment, in the circumstance, and we could all have those moments of testing and trying and we wonder, am I loved? Is he mad at me? He, he drove the stake for his love, and it's the cross. There is my proof that I've loved you, that I've sought to rescue you. I gave up my only begotten son that he might die in your place. Um, this is the working definition. Think of First John, a love that's unconditional, a love that's wrapped up in the nature of the lover, not in how lovely the objects are. I, I have to say in human love, you see uh, cases every once in a while that astound you. You'll see afflicted children, and you, you're in awe of the devotion of the parents. I've been in awe of some of our mothers that were handed afflicted children, uh, mental capacity forever limited, physical capabilities limited. And I've watched some of you, Mahai, you think God handed you an Einstein. You think God handed you perfection. You say, I can love whatever I carried. I can love whatever he gives. There's nothing as moving in the human experience as mother love is probably the greatest human love we see. They come home from these hospitals to watch the chance when their baby was dying, Kaiser in Oakland, holding, hoping, loving, picture-taking, hoping, crying. Whoa, whoa, how can you get wrapped, that wrapped up in someone that's only been out of the womb 
I don't think it was over three weeks. How can you get so much of your heart and devotion? This child has never bought your gift. This child has never said a kiss on your mouth and said, I love you, mother. How can you get that much in love in three weeks besides in the uterus? It's, it's, there's nothing like it. The only thing greater is the love of God who said, I'd give up my son in order that you could have eternal life. Now, this is the kind of love Paul is saying, unless your giftedness, whatever it is, operates out of this kind of love and motivation for God and for his own. He said, who are you kidding? We're not that needy about your gift. A gift without love is like... Uh, Baking a cake without adding the water or the milk. You got all the ingredients in there. You maybe cracked an egg or two. You've got it in there. But I just don't want to add the milk. I don't want to add the water that brings it all together, makes it cohesive. You've got a mess. You've got a dust bowl. You don't have a cake. You've got dry dust. And if you've got gifts without the love of God, you've got a mess you don't have. You've got a church in confusion, going to the church meetings, competing for who will be heard, uh, not caring for one another, disorder. He said, love, love is what makes the body of Christ cohere. If none of you knew about gifts, if none of you ever heard about gifts, but you were walking in love, we'd still get your gift without you even knowing it. It would just happen. The greatest thing we got to ask, are we loving one another, and does the one another know it? See, that's why you folks that get in late and rush out quick and hope nobody says hi, uh, you, you are an anomaly. You are an anomaly. You're, you're not in the church. You're just uh, taking up extra space, and we're trying to keep you awake. You're missing out on Christianity and substituting it for hearing a sermon. No, until God turns you into a lover, you don't have the real thing because he gushes out the love of God in our heart when he saves us. Let's quickly look at the three things he says at all in the first three verses. Number one, if you don't use your gift in love, you don't produce harmony. And the gifts, harmony, you need at least two strings that complement each other. You know, guitar, you got an E and a B and a G and a D and an A and an E. Some way you make a chord where all of those notes together make a harmonious one sound. And you've got to have the right fingering on the neck of that instrument and bringing it together. But he said, a gift without love is noisy. It's uh, the word he uses is like a gong. It's not even musical. It's a, a loud sound, boom, clanging of cymbals, just what your heart needs when you come to church, boom. Because gifts without love just make noise, and it's hard on the soul. It brings no harmony to the heart. Uh, and listen to these gifts. The gift of tongues. 
uh, I take tongues to be languages from Acts 2, but let's say you've got the language of men, that you're speaking in languages you never knew, it just comes on you, you use it in the body. He even elevates it to angelic languages, whatever those may be, uh, no, no matter what dialect you might be in. You may have gone all the way up and you're talking in the language of Michael the archangel. It does not matter. Without love, I just make a lot of noise, but I bring no harmony. Then he goes on to say, and if I have prophetic powers, wow, this is a powerful gift, prophetic powers, and I get the feeling either this prophecy is connected with mysteries or the gift of knowledge, uh, I can prophesy, I can preach as a word direct from heaven, I can understand all mysteries and have knowledge, and oh, how people love knowledge. We rate people by knowledge. But just think if you had a person in the body of Christ that by supernatural gifting were made to see things you couldn't get in a commentary that you couldn't get by talking. God just directly teaches them and gives them insight and knowledge that you couldn't get at a library. Boom. I mean, they just got a pipeline. God gives them supernatural understanding of mysteries and knowledge. Think of it. And if I had all faith, not the gift of faith to be saved, but the faith to do miracles and remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Wow. Everybody in the church could be blessed by you and while you're getting nothing. No reward, no fulfillment. People are going, they're walking out and saying, wow, did you hear brother so-and-so? Did you hear that prophecy? I want to preach like that, let's say. I want to prophesy like that. Uh, uh, the, the knowledge, and they only went to the fifth grade. Where did they get that? It has to be a supernatural gift. But man, he's sure hard on his wife, and he sure is a gossip. And he doesn't seem to love anybody, but oh man, when he gets in the spirit, he's another person. Wow, what gifts. And we're all in awe, and God said, they're a big fat zero to me. And Corinth, you're in love with platform gifts. You're in love with knowledge. You're in love with prophets because you love oratories. So, man, these prophets go right down your alley. Oh, you love knowledge because you've got Socrates and Aristotle and Philo, and you've got all these Euripides up there at Athens and Mars Hill. You guys are brilliant. You love Give me something I've never heard before. God says you are zero. Unless love is the motivating power, and unless you love that congregation, love those people, I cannot tell you how many gifted men I've grown up around that are has-beens, fallen, shelved, because their life was eaten up with other motivating factors, though they were gifted beyond which I could describe. You see, Balaam was a great prophet. 
Balaam could prophesy and put a curse on Israel if God didn't withstand him and use a donkey to stand in his way. He was a prophet for sale. He was a prophet for profit. But he was a prophet, all right. Even Saul was among the prophets when he got away from God and went and do things God's way. Oh, you could prophesy big time. Even Judas was among those disciples he sent out to cast out de demons, heal the sick, and they all, 70 of them, came back one time, and they were all bragging about all the great miracles. And he said, what you ought to rejoice about is your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But Judas's name was not in the Lamb's book of life, though he could cast out demons. And Jesus said, in the last days, people will come before him claiming the miraculous things done by them. We heal the sick in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did it. We were in demand. We might have even been on TV. And he's going to say, but I never knew you. You weren't mine. You were crooks from the beginning. You just used religious deception to deceive people, doing the miraculous and doing the fancy and casting out a demon. He said, that's not the measure in that day. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Have you loved anybody? Not have you sold a million tapes? If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body, that's probably... Uh, the better idea, I, I, I just give up my body. Um, it doesn't mean they were not being martyred by burning at this time, so some de debate that text. But it's I, if I give up my body, God, spend it any way you want. And even if it went to martyrdom, I can't imagine that I could do this without love, but he said I could. It's people giving large donations to the church. They don't do it in love. They do it for tax deduction. Well, we don't refund their money. Please feel led, do it now. We used to refund money. When I first started this church, if we found any check or anything that came from an unbeliever, we returned it. Now we just deposit it. We don't have time to track down everybody. But I, I, we just, that's why we didn't take an offering for 10 years. I wanted to be sure people came to church not thinking we expected money. And God supplied. God supplied. I changed it because finally we wanted buildings. And I said, well, if you want buildings, you've got to learn to give more than ever. And you have. And you've done it. But it's wonderful to not have to pass a plate because I'm not giving for a deduction. Love has got to be the motive. I love this God. Uh, that's what makes you a generous giver. It's what makes you hilarious. Those people say, oh, they're taking the offering. Oh, please keep it. Please keep it. Keep it. Keep it. God's not broke. He'll move on somebody's heart here. But why is it that all the folks that really love him seem so broke? I'm just trying to get all of you folks rich so you can give bigger gifts. And loving too, right? Loving with all your heart and everybody become a millionaire. But God's made so many poor Christians because he's more blessed with a widow's might 
that a man who gives it doesn't have in his heart. You ought to be both. He's prospered me. He's given to me, and I give because I love him. So he says, but I can do it without love. I still get a tax write-off, but before God, you got no credit. He, he, he never wrote it even down because he looks at our motive. Um, as you come to the, um, this Christmas season, I, I just read a, a moving story that Chuck Swindoll gives, and he, he's suggesting when you come around to Christmas time and you don't know what gift to get. I don't know if you, uh, do you know people that, uh, and I'm one of them. I tell my kids, don't buy me anything, but I'll get mad if they don't. <laughs> Girls, did you hear that? Okay, where are they? Uh, you know, but it's the idea that, uh, I don't really need, they've got children at home. I don't need a Christmas gift. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. It's my time of life to be doing the giving. And so I, we kid. We go on this way. But sometimes you know those people that got everything. What, what could you possibly give them at Christmas time? The ideal gift is to give yourself. to give you, um, give an hour of your time to maybe a widow, have them, you and the wife, take them out to dinner. Even go by Bay Park and visit one. Do you ever visit, does a, a gray-headed person have worth in your world? I was at the seniors' uh, dinner last night, about 80 of us, uh, Guess what? Every age category matters to God. What, what you ought to really give is a hug of affirmation, maybe to a loved one, to an old grandmother. A visit of mercy. Sean showed me pictures that he and Steve took. They visited a homeless shelter over in Vallejo. And, uh, Steve, one of our brothers, was given three turkeys. You know what he did? He and his wife cooked the three turkeys made turkey sandwiches, and they distribute them there in Vallejo this past weekend. They just say, we'd like to give you this for Christmas in Jesus' name. I don't know what price you want to set on a turkey sandwich, but when you're starving and you're cold, I've had some years I just gave the homeless a brand-new blanket for Christmas. You think I gave them a new car. Swindoll tells the moving story. I'm never quite, never read it, but when I'm not moved, that uh, uh, a school teacher in a Christian school was teaching, and uh, she had one student that drove her batty uh, that could just get on their nerves. And uh, this uh, kid drove her batty. She didn't care for him at all. He was uh, glassy-eyed. He stared through most of the class. He was ill-kept. His clothes were messy. Uh, There's nothing attractive about him, and she saw no way he was going to make it. And she confessed that she loved to put an X over his wrong answers, and with some way that she was shameful and saying that she rejoiced when she put an F on a paper because this boy just didn't have it, and he turned her off. Uh, and then... Uh, she was acquainted with his stat, though, his profile. She had him for several grades, and she read 
and in the first grade, they said this about him. He shows promise with his work and attitude, but poor home situation. Second grade, he could do better. Mother is seriously ill. He receives little help at home. Third grade, good boy, but too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, he is very slow, but well-behaved. His father shows no interest. Terry Stollard was his name. Christmas time rolled around the school, and uh, all the kids were giving gifts to Miss Thompson. And when it came time for her to uh, get a gift, there was a gift there wrapped in brown paper uh, with scotch tape on it, and it said uh, to Miss Thompson from Teddy. And when he opened, uh, or she opened the gift, out fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with many of the rhinestones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume. Uh, the other kids began to laugh and giggle and smirk, but she, she was sensitive to the boy, and she began to make a fuss over the bracelet. She put it on, even with the rhinestones missing, and she took the cheap perfume and began to put it on her ear and put it on her hand and went around the room letting the kids smell it. And all the kids caught on and ooh and ah, and they made a big fuss about it. It was big stuff, made him feel like a million bucks. At the end of the day, Miss Thompson says she got on her knees and she asked God to forgive her for the, her feeling towards this boy and how she had really um, taken delight and his failings. And so she asked God's forgiveness, and she began uh, teaching him with a new zest. Lost contact with him. He went on, and after years had passed, she gets these notes. Get this. She didn't hear from Teddy for a long time, and this Swindoll tells the story. Then she received this note. It read, Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know. I will be graduating second in my class. Love, Teddy Stallard. Listen, four years later, another note came. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I will be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. The university has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stollard, M.D. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I want you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You are the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Terry Stollard. She went to the wedding. She sat where his mother would sit. And Teddy said, you deserve to sit there for ever since the fifth grade you've been a mother to me. The very day you accepted my cheap perfume and my broken bracelet. What means more, a bottle of cheap perfume 
and a ratty bracelet given by a broken boy or a new Lexus or some big stuff in this materialism. You know what people are dying for? Someone to love them. Forget all your gifts. I don't care what kind of musician you are. Who cares? There's millions of them making a living or starving. We don't care all your gifts in this church. You know what makes the church go? It's not gifts. It's love that employs me to do whatever I've got for the cause of Christ. To do whatever I've got for the cause of Christ. I'm going to invite Sean shortly to uh, give you a chance to help some families. But I read you the uh, words of a song that Bill Gaither wrote. I am loved, I am loved, I can risk loving you. For the one who knows me best loves me most. See, I'm not sure I'd want to love you if I knew you. That's why I don't want to love you. But he says, the one that knows me best loves me most. He said, uh, all I had to bring was imperfection. There was so much more I lacked than I possessed. I could hardly comprehend his offer. I'd give all I had. He'd give the rest. I said, if you knew, you wouldn't want me. My scars are hidden by the face I wear. He said, my child, my scars go deeper. It was love for you that put them there. Forgiven, I repeat it, I'm forgiven. Clean before my Lord, I freely stand. Forgiven, I can dare forgive my brother. Forgiven, I reach out to take your hand. You are loved, you are loved. You can risk loving too. And so I just say to you, dear saints, our greatest poverty is how little we love, but our greatest rewards will be everything we did from the motive of love, whether it was give, a meal, a hug, an encouragement note, or stop long enough in the foyer to introduce you to somebody that looks like they don't know anybody in this place. Are we about love or about gifts? Well, I want to be about gifts used in love. I don't want it to be just about gifts. It's worthless. It's worthless. My preaching's worthless. My pastoring's worthless unless my motives are right and only God knows why I'm doing it. When I stand before him, he will expose the motives of my heart. Sean, come.